The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode nine of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That intro beat is the same as last week's intro beat because, well, first of all, because Patrick just killed it. That was Patrick's uh, submission for the Drum Club project a few months back, where he manipulated one of the beats that we provide, one of the loops that we provided, put it on his own layers. Really, really cool. So I'm happy to feature Patrick again, but also I forgot to solicit a new intro beat for this week and I didn't have time to record one myself, which makes me bring up the topic that if you have anything you would like to submit to be featured on the show as an intro outro beat, please don't be afraid. Send it over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Include just some info about what you're playing, the gear you're playing, maybe the composition if you have music that you're playing to just make sure it's not copyrighted music we can't drop in anything that has copyright protection but if it's your own thing or just you playing drums shoot it over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com and thanks again to patrick for his submission so what's happening in the drum world all right the first big piece of news to announce is that we have just launched a new website it is called stickshed.com it is, as you would expect, it's a place for you to buy drumsticks and mallets and brushes and accessories. Um, it's fully mobile and responsive. It was developed here from the team at the parent company of Drum Factor Direct, Stratosphere. We developed it in-house, all original content. Um, I'm adding some educational stuff regularly. I think there's three lessons there now, plus a general resource on how to help you pick the right drumstick for your purpose. Um, and it's pretty extensive selection. Um, you might we have pretty much everything from Vic Firth and Promark, Invader, and we've got a bunch of head sticks on there. We've got you know tons of accessories. So go over there, check it out, create create an account, uh, make an order if you have something you need, and definitely let me know if there's something that you want that you don't see. Um, like I said, the catalog is pretty extensive, but I'm sure there's some SKUs that, that haven't quite made it yet. So we'll be happy to order anything that you might need. Yeah, so go check it out. We're really stoked about it. It's fully responsive, so you can now order on your phone a lot easier. Um, yeah, stickshed.com. Go check it out and let us know what you think. As far as some new releases that you might want to check out if you haven't already, I'm going to I'm going to limit myself to just a couple each episode rather than last week. I feel like I went totally crazy and overwhelmed myself and probably you with too many things to check out. So I've got two things here. Uh, the first one, the legendary fusion uh, band Yellow Jackets put out a new record. It's called Parallel Motion. This features the always amazing Will Kennedy on drums. Will was not the original drummer in the band. I believe it was Ricky Lawson. And then by the third record, I think, was when Will joined. He did a long tenure, and then the early 2000s, he stepped away. Marcus Baylor did a number of years, I think almost 10 years with the band. And then Will Kennedy came back. So this is a really fantastic record. Again, it's called Parallel Motion. If you're not hip to Will Kennedy, check out all the records that he's on. He's one of my favorite, quote-unquote, fusion drummers because it's it's not as... 
it's not as like um, precise and clean and, and techy as some of the other fusion stuff. It's pretty warm. His drum sound is usually a bit fatter and deeper, very organic, super groovy. Um, so this is a really, really nice record. And it's mostly, you know, piano, sax, drums, and bass, a little bit of, of synth layering, but it's not like the, you know, the 80s fusion with all the crazy synthesizer stuff. It's a pretty organic sounding record. Sounds really, really nice. He's using fatter snare drum sounds, which are really nice to hear in this style. So again, it's called Parallel Motion by the Yellow Jackets, featuring the always great Will Kennedy on drums. Another record I've been checking out, which came out in May, and I totally forgot to give it a listen. It is by Abishai Cohen. It is called Shifting Sands, and it features Ronnie Caspi on drums. Ronnie is a great up-and-coming drummer that um, you know I've been following her on, on Instagram for for. A long while um, just really adventurous um, really creative and interesting player this band is always great Avishai Cohen has been one of my all-time favorite artists the bass player the, the the trumpet player is great too but I'm talking about Avishai Cohen the bass player and that's been a, a pretty legendary drum chair with you know Jeff Ballard and and Antonio Sanchez and Mark Juliana so Ronnie's just doing her thing with it and taking the band in an interesting new direction so definitely check out this record shifting sands by avishai cohen all right let's shift over and talk about some more snare wires last week i compared all of the basic standard steel wires that we currently have in our house brand with i believe it was 12 16 20 25 and 42 strand versions those are the kind of baseline chrome steel end plates snappy snare wires we also offer a version that that's called german style what is a german style snare wire it has a phosphor bronze end plate so it looks it has a bronze color to it it's a little bit bit different design maybe i think it's a little bit wider end plate slightly ever so slightly heavier so what we're going to do here is we're going to compare the steel version versus the german style version and just see if you can really tell a difference between the two i will admit the differences are minor, but the more I started going back and forth between these videos, I started to hear, you know, a significant, maybe not deal-breaking difference, but I could start to notice a difference. And all these like 1% differences, I think, can add up to the overall sound that you're looking for. Also, the, the German style, they look cooler because they have like the nice bronze in place versus the chrome steel, which is just kind of more like standard and normal. So anyway... Uh, take that for what it's worth but here we're going to do so i'm going to do quick cuts you're going to hear like the crescendo on one version and then i'm jump to the other one and then i'm going to do like a measure of a beat from one version jump cut to the other version so really see if you can hear a difference the first thing we're going to do is the 16 strand so it'll be the 16 strand steel and then it'll jump to the 16 strand german style here we go now that we've got your ears kind of tuned in to what you're listening for try to listen past any minor tuning differences i tried to tune these drums identically but 
you know, it's going to be tiny little bits of overtone. Just listen to the density of the snare sound, the length of the note, how fast they're responding. Um, let's move it up. So we're going to go up to the 20 strand now. So again, it'll be 20 strand steel and then jump to the 20 strand German style. Now let's go up to the 25 strand. This is steel and then the standard steel end clips and then the German style. Here we go, 25 strands. And then last but not least, we've got the big boy. This is the 42 strand steel and then the 42 strand German style. So all of the German style wires, if you're gonna look for these on the site, you can find them under the snare wire category, but they all have the model number SWG. So snare wire German, if you're gonna look for those, whereas versus the regular steel, which is just SW. So SW1442 for the steel and then SWG1442 for the German style. I think the more wires you get on these, the more you really start to hear the difference. I actually tricked myself when I was listening back now. By mistake, I listened to the German first and then the steel, and it really flipped my ear. So I'm starting to hear the difference. Does it really matter? That's for each of us to decide. But here we go. This is the 42-strand steel and then the 42-strand German style. I don't know about you, but I, I can really start to hear a difference when I'm kind of got my ear tuned to what I'm listening for. What am I hearing? I'm hearing a little bit more density out of the German style. I think being slightly heavier actually gives it a denser snare sound. Um, I guess it, it's bringing the wires back against the head a little bit with a little bit more stability. So there's less after buzz. So I feel like maybe a little bit crisper and cleaner. Sounds a little bit more fuller. I think in, in a more intangible, it just feels a little bit more professional. That's my observation. Um, the prices are pretty comparable, so go check them out on the site. That's the German style snare wires versus the standard steel snare wires. You know, whichever one you dig, that's the right sound for you. Next week, we will go through the pure sound catalog, which is, has some pretty interesting different types of models. But that's our overview of basic uh, snappy steel wires in the DFD model line with the 
chrome-plated steel end plates versus the German-style end plates. Hope that helped, and let's move on to our featured artist. This week, I got to interview one of my favorite drummers from my favorite band. This is Jerry Gaskill from the legendary alternative rock band. I guess they're considered, they're like the, a band that, that, that sits between alternative rock and metal, depending on which era you're coming from. But the great band King's X, they just put out a new record. Make sure I get the title correct. It is called Three Sides of One. That just came out a couple weeks ago. It's a really, really, I mean, consistent. King's X has been consistent. There's going to be great riffs. There's going to be strong, simple meat and potatoes grooves with some cool extra nuance, really interesting vocals, um, you know, gorgeous harmonies, all that kind of stuff. So they're a really, really great band. And Jerry's just just a cool guy, good hang, great drummer. So here's my hang with Jerry Gaskill. He doesn't really talk too much about gear, so I got as much as I could out of him. But this is more of a general conversation about being a drummer in a band for this long and, and how they do what they do. So check it out. Jerry Gaskell. Yeah, how do you uh, stave off back pain as a drummer? That's my question for everyone. I'm dealing with it. Man. Really? I, I've never really had back pain as a drummer, although I do have a herniated disc. But I don't think it's from drumming. Mm. It doesn't bother me though. It, it bothered me many, many years ago to the point where I, I felt like I couldn't even, I couldn't even walk. I wanted to write a country song called "Sciatica's Got the Best of Me," you know. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it really doesn't even bother me at all anymore. So that's interesting. That doesn't affect you when you're playing. Not at all. Nothing. No. No. Well, knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah things, things seem to go well when I'm when I'm playing. Now, that seems to be the least of my problems. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, congratulations on the new record. It's your 13th studio record. First one since 2008, which I couldn't believe it was that long of a gap between. seems like that was just yesterday. But, um, yeah, I feel like you guys need to, um, in addition to being a legendary rock band, you should be relationship counselors. <laughs> How does a band stay together that long? Original lineup, everything. I know we get asked that question a lot. And um, I think my answer is always when we first got together, we really felt that this is the band we wanted to be in. We, these are the guys that we all three wanted to play with. It just felt right. And we just gave everything to it. And then as time went on, the only thing I can think is that that was something truly to believe in or we're just stupid. You know, I don't know. One or the other. <laughs> but we're still together. We're still making music and I'm and I'm happy with what we're doing. I mean, I, I love I love the new record. I enjoyed yeah, making it, but that, I really enjoyed making it. Was anything different about the writing process for this one versus previous records? I think the only difference is that it was what we're doing now. You know, because there's never there's no real formula on how we write songs. You know, we all write songs, we all bring them in, or we write them together, whatever. We've done it all those different ways. So this was just uh, us getting together after however many years it was. Was it like 13 years or something like that? Or 12 years? Whatever it was. Uh, well, it was 2008, the last record came out. We got together in 2019. It's like 11 years since we'd recorded together. So there was that newness. and uh, But for me, it was a great experience. I, I, I totally enjoyed making this record. As much as uh, making a record is full of 
uh, you know, depression and terrible things and all of that, you know, uh, I totally enjoyed it and I'm, and I'm happy with the product. Was it like riding a bike or did you have to kind of knock some rust off as a band? Uh, I think it was kind of like riding a bike, but I always feel like we're, 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 uh, knocking dust off all the time or rust, whatever, you, whatever the word was rust. Yeah. All the time. And that's just, that's what life is. I mean, every day I wake up, Oh, I got to get rid of this rust. I got to get rid of that rust. Got to figure out how to make it through this. You know, that's just life, right? So with this batch of songs, how much, how many of them were completely written and brought in versus ideas that were fleshed out as a group? Hmm. I know that Ty and I both brought in like three or four songs that we had, com- you know, pretty much completed a demo for them. And Doug had all kinds of songs that we didn't know anything about until we got there for the most part. And uh, so I think we all had songs written when we got there, but that, but at the same time, once we start working on those songs together, they may or may not turn into something different where we're all putting our ideas into it. So I think songs were pretty much written before we got there and we just took it from there and turned them into whatever they are now. How do you write? Do you write with guitar? I, I usually write with guitar. I've written uh, a few songs on piano and most most songs I've written are on guitar. Not that I'm a guitar player, not that I'm a piano player either, but that's just how I write songs. <laughs> now, do you write them in the style of King's X or do they become King's X? I think they just become King's X. I just write songs to write songs. And uh, I don't have anything in mind for it to sound like anything in particular. You know, if an idea comes to me, I just do it and I go with it. And it turns into a song. If I like it, I present it, or I put on a solo record, or whatever. But uh, I have nothing in my mind as I go into writing a song, other than, "Hey, I'm going to write a song." So, how did what what was on your demos? Were they, did you do full arrangements? Like how? Pretty much. Uh, I worked with a friend of mine. We worked together to record them, and he helped me actually write one of the songs. Uh, take the time off the new record. And uh, She Called Me Home was another one, and Holidays. Those were all songs that basically they were completely written and somewhat arranged. And that's what I presented to the band. So what is your background? Did drums come first or some other instrument? Drums always come last for me. When I'm writing a song, drums are the very last thing I'm even thinking about. And once I get the song done, I said, oh, okay, let's see if I can... uh, put some drums on this now and that's how it comes about for me because drums i don't know it's a weird thing i know i'm a drummer but drums are always you know the last thing i think about you know i i just like to write the song like to have the melody and the structure and then uh if drums fit they fit and hopefully i can make that happen (laughs) have you had any songs that drums didn't fit Yes, I have some songs there. There, there are no drums at all. Like "Take the Time" when I presented that to uh, the band, there are no drums on that one at all. But we ended up putting drums on it because when we were in the studio. I just thought, hey, I think I should play this with some brushes, just some nice soft drum things happening, and I think it worked out really well. 
And there's a lot of songs on my first solo record that have no drums on them, or a few songs, two or three, two, maybe three, whatever. So, how do you, so when you're presented with songs from the other guys, how do you, first of all, are there drums on them, or, you know, do you offer input? Like, I'm curious of the dynamic of having three songwriters in a band. Well, most likely when, when, when a song is brought to us, uh, it has, you know, all the parts on it for the most part. It does, usually has drums, you know, program drums, usually. And, uh, and, and once you hear something like that, at least for me, it's always hard to get those ideas out of your head because that's what you're listening to. And you're thinking, even if you feel something different, that still just kind of seems to be stuck there in my head. But I try to put myself into it and, uh, you know, make it feel more like myself, which I think I do because I think whenever I play anything, even if I'm trying to play it exactly like somebody else, it still ends up sounding like me for some reason. So, so there's that. What little changes do you make? Is it nuances or is it you know, bass drum patterns? What ends up shifting? It could be all of that. Yeah. It could be uh nuance is a good one. Definitely nuance. But, uh, like for instance, uh, there's a song called swipe up on the new record. There's also one called flood part one where Doug, Doug is very into Meshuggah. And I remember when he played those, he played the demo for uh, Swipe Up and ended up being Swipe Up. We kind of changed it around a lot. But uh, when I first heard that, I thought, oh my God, it's great, Doug. But, you know, I don't play drums like that at all. That is not what I do. And I was excited and fearful at the same time, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? I don't play like that. You know, and it ended up me not playing like that at all, which I think is great. I think Ty at one point said, uh, just just play it like you would play it. Play it like Bonham might play it, which I which I did, and uh, has a completely different feel now, and uh, and 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 I and I can get behind it. it. It's it's me now. It's me playing drums, and it became a King became a King's X song. Have you ever played double bass? I did when I was a teenager. Then I quickly got rid of that. <laughs> I never felt like a double bass player. All my favorite drummers are, play the same setup that I use right now, except for Carmine. Carmine was a favorite, and he used double kick. Who are some of your favorites? Well, uh, Ringo was definitely a first favorite. Buddy Rich was a first favorite. Uh, then from there, John Bonham is a favorite. Don Brewer is a favorite. Uh, Carmine Apiece is a favorite. Uh, and I always say if I had to choose perfect drumming, it would be John Bonham and Buddy Rich somehow melded together into one drummer. And to me, that would be absolutely perfect drumming. Well, I can't go wrong with those choices. I think Don Brewer might be the one that I wouldn't have thought of, but now it makes perfect sense, being a singing drummer in a rock band. Sometimes I feel I feel like I play most like Don Brewer. That's interesting. I was trying to think this morning, like, who does Jerry sound like? And I should have thought of that. <laughs> but like I said earlier, I try to, if I try to sound like somebody, like if I try to do something like John Bonham or anybody, it always just ends up sounding like me. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing, a bad thing or whatever, but it's just the thing. That's the way it is. <laughs> Let's talk about the gear used to record. What was the kit? Well, actually, um, 
uh, when I got there, uh, Michael Parnon, and we did it at Black Sound Studios, just Michael Parnon, in, uh, in Pasadena, I think it was, or somewhere in L.A., and uh, he had a kit there. And I said, well, let me just try that kit. And that's what I end up using for most of the record, except for Take the Time. And I used a, a Dixon kit, which is what I which I which is what I normally use live. And you know, whenever I play, I use Dixon, and that's what I used on uh, Take the Time with, with the brushes and all, which I thought was perfect. Hmm. But all the other songs were the the house kit from Michael Parnon. I don't even remember what they were. Was it st- your normal sizes, or was it something different? Yeah, basically my normal sizes. Although I only used one uh, floor tom, I usually use floor toms, two floor toms. And uh, but they sounded good. They felt good. I said, "Hey, let's just do that. Then we're making a record. Let's let's use what's 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 working." You know, we would just we would use like a different snare for every song practically. You know, we try to get the sounds that felt right for each song. So we worked quite a bit on this record, make it what it is. Were the snares at the studio, or did you bring in your own? Uh, there were some snares there. Uh, Greg Bissonette brought in some snares for me which is very nice. And uh, I remember he brought a snare for me to use on the ear candy record many years ago. And I ended up using that on the record. And he told me once he heard the record and heard that snare on there, he can never play it again. So he just gave it to me. <laughs> now it sits in my basement with all my other snares. <laughs> Do you remember what drum it was? What It was a what Slingerland. It's a Slingerland. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> What were the snares on this record? Do you remember them? Oh, man, I don't. I am so not a gear guy that I just don't even think about that stuff. If it feels right, if it sounds right, I go with it. So is the process just grab a drum, however it's tuned, try it. If it's cool, use it. If it's not, get a different drum or were you retuning? That's exactly what we did. We tried different snares and, you know, because we felt the vibe of the song. We thought, hey, this might need a, 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 a deeper snare, you know, to get that, that kind of tone. And we tried. If it didn't work, we tried to tune it. If it did work, then we'd go with another snare until we found what we felt worked. Interesting. Yeah. I'm always curious, then, what is it that makes you say that's the right drum for this song? Uh, for me, a lot of it is feel. Things have to feel right for me. But when you're making a record, there's, you have to consider the tone as well. And I depended on... Michael quite a bit when we were when we were getting sounds you know if it felt right I thought hey this feels good and he would say hey yeah that that sounds good that's going to work with this song and and we go with it what about live do you carry multiple snares or you roll with one um that'd be a that'd be a good question for my tech (laughs) Mm. I think there's got to be at least at least two snares I know there's at least two because if something happens to one I'm going to have to have another one pretty quickly. So but you're not probably, swapping them out in the middle of shows or anything? Only if need be, yeah. Like if, mm-hmm. a, if a head breaks or something, we have to have another snare ready rather than take time to change the head and put it back on. We have to have one ready to go. So I'd say there's at least two, maybe three. I don't know. Uh, did you record live as a band or was it overdub sessions? For the most part, we, we did the basic tracks live. And of course, from there, there's a lot of overdubbing. But we wanted to get a band feel. We've always done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Click track or no click? Click track, yeah. 
which is a good thing and a bad thing, you know, because it it keeps the it keeps the groove there, yet at the same time, it can hinder the feeling you inside of the groove. If that makes any sense, because there's not much room to to waver when you're playing with a click. There's a very very small margin that you can waver or get around when using a click, and uh, I think I use that a lot just to get the feel, because if it's right on the click, I mean, I don't know if anybody plays right on, maybe they, maybe they do, but right on, you might as well just use a drum machine or just program it, you know, because it's not going to have a feeling to it then. It's just going to sound like, you know, programmed drums, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're like an absolutely incredible drummer that plays perfectly in time all the time. Which I don't now, know. What about I mean. earlier records? Is Do you always use a click or is this a more recent thing? Yeah, from the first record, we, we've used a click, yeah. I think there's a couple songs we didn't use a click, like I think Moan Jam off of uh, Faith, Hope, Love, we didn't use a click on that. I think the end of uh, Visions off the first record, we didn't use a click for that. But for the most part, yeah, we, we, we use a click. What about live? Never, never live. So have you felt that the tempos need to change when you play these songs on stage in front of a crowd? I don't know if I feel they need to, but I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I start songs the way I feel them, and hopefully it's not too fast or too slow. Sometimes it is. And oh, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong. But you go with it. What are you going to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have a metronome on stage that you start off with or anything? I do not. Feel? Maybe I should, but I don't. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I've not done a lot of things I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> Are you guys going to be touring this record? Yeah, we've done three shows already. The first three shows we've done in two and a half years. Mm. And uh, I just remember thinking, I don't even know if I can do this anymore, if I even want to do this. I think we're all nervous about it because it's been so long and we learned new songs off the record. And, uh, and as soon as I got on stage, it's like, oh my God, this is what I do. You know, I, I think... I think I'll continue doing this. You know, it was nice to see the crowd out there. It was sold out in New York. It, it was actually, actually incredible. And it reminded me of who I am, which was a very, very good thing for me. Because I was, I was losing myself, man, you know, through this whole, uh, I guess, the pandemic and the change in the world. I mean, everybody's been through it, right? And it just got to a point where I just didn't know what to think or feel anymore. You know, right felt wrong, wrong felt right. Everything in between was like, I'm sure we all felt that way, but I only care about myself. You know, that's all I have to deal with. <laughs> that's what did you right. do to I occupy about, your... I care about other people. What did you do to occupy your, your time like, creatively over the past two and a half years? Well, what I did, I've been threatening for many years, I'm going to build myself a little studio at home so I can record other than just GarageBand. And during the pandemic, that's exactly what I did. And I spent a lot of the time just writing songs and recording them and learning how to operate all this cue bass and stuff, which was absolutely incredible for me. I'm very glad I, I, I have that now. So is there a solo record in the works? Oh, there's a solo record in the works, yeah. No doubt about nice. it. I don't know when, but it's coming. <laughs> Do you ever play out as a solo artist? I have on my first record, I did like three or four shows, which again, to me was incredible. I remember um, I had a great band 
uh, uh, Dan Carcos, who I did my second record with. He was one of the guitar players. Matt Farley played drums. John Farley played bass. And Andy Black, Black Sugar, was on guitar as well. Great guitar player. All great musicians. I felt like I was the weakest link in the band, actually. But I was the front guy. And uh, it was incredible. I remember being really, really nervous before the first show. We rehearsed. We felt like we knew what we were doing. But I was so nervous because I'd never done that. I played a little bit of guitar. And uh, I was sang. You know, just standing up front singing. I've never done this in my life. But I remember as soon as we started, I think it was after the first, during the first song, am I allowed to, am I allowed to say words that start with F? <laughs> sure. <laughs> during the first song, I walked over to Dan and said, I think I can motherfucking do this motherfucking shit. <laughs> That's how excited I was. I just said, I can do this. And it was a great show, man. The place was packed. It was awesome. And I just want to do more. I tried to do something for the second record, but it just we just couldn't make it happen financially and all that stuff. So. Yeah, it terrifies me to think about getting behind, out from behind the drum set and being that vulnerable in front of a crowd. I wouldn't be able to do it. I had to feel so foreign. It was very foreign, but like I said, I can motherfucking do this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> because they're my songs and I... And I, you know, I just had to do it. I had to do it. And I play, I play locally around town too. I play drums in, in, in some local bands around town, which is very fun. And you're in Houston now? No, I'm in New Jersey. Red Bank, oh. New Jersey. Why did your number come up as Houston, Texas? Because I still have a Houston, Texas number. Oh. I figured I had it for so many years. Why change it? Because everybody <laughs> okay. has it, you know? Well, it's funny you say you're not really a gear guy because I feel like your sound is so consistent and identifiable. And like I would think you you're very meticulous about the gear you use and the sound that you get. Well, my opinion on that is a lot of what we do as musicians is in our hands and in our feet. It's how we hit the drums. It's how we, you know, and same with guitar or any instrument. You know, I think... Some uh, somebody could sit on my drums after I've played them, and I and when I play them, they sound the way I play, sound like me. Somebody else could sit behind them, and it's going to sound completely different. So I I personally think a lot of it has to do with what's inside you and how you hit them and how it comes out. That's why that's why I think it always sounds like me. And uh, unfortunately, I've never seen you guys live yet, but watching some video footage. It doesn't seem like you're hitting super hard, but you're getting a really strong, clean sound, particularly out of the snare and the kick. Hmm. Um, just an observation. Are there any thoughts on that? But. I don't. I don't. I don't know what really, really hard is. I mean, I know I'm, I'm playing uh, hard sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I'm hitting what feels like is the most powerful I can do, hmm. and there's other times when that's not necessary. You know, I think that's where dynamics might come in. You know, it's all in how it feels at the time for me. I think that's what makes it be what it is. It makes me be me. Dynamics is something often overlooked with rock bands and, and loud guitars. Um, do you think of dynamics in a volume thing or is it more of a density intensity kind of thing? 
I think probably both. Because volume is it's it's not all just in volume. It's it's again all in how you hit it. You know, I mean it might be softer, but still if it doesn't have I don't know if finesse is the right word, but it doesn't have that feel that's necessary, it's just gonna sound like you're hitting your plant softer. You know, it won't be it won't it won't have that thing that's necessary, I feel. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. All right. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to probe you a little bit about your your gear. Okay. Um, <laughs> kick I'm drum such a gear guy <laughs> with a pillow hole, no hole, less muffling. How is it set up? Right now, I'm I'm, I'm using a there's a hole in my kick drum, and I'm using the uh, Evans. I think it's called Emad. You know, that has the like type of foam muffling thing in it already, and that's pretty much what I'm using. Wow, nothing extra inside the drum. Nothing I'm aware of. Unless my tech puts something in there sometimes. I'm not, you know, not privy to. <laughs> but I think that's it, yeah. Now, what about your toms? Because they sound so full and resonant and clean. Do you put any tape or dampening on those? That just depends. I like to do it without anything, if if can be. But sometimes, I don't know if it's because of the the acoustics in the room or whatever it is, you know, there might be a ring that needs to be taken out. And sometimes tuning doesn't always do that. So you might have to put a little piece of tape or a little, you know, whatever that stuff's called on there to mm-hmm. dampen that. So basically whatever it takes to get the sound that works for the front of house and for me is what we do. That same with the snare drum, because you always have a pretty open sounding snare. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's that way with all the drums. Yeah. Whatever, whatever works is what we're going to do. Sweet. Yeah, man. Um, you talked about your biggest info. Oh, I have to ask this. This is a question I ask every guest. What was your first snare drum? Oh, my first snare drum. That's a funny story. I'm glad you asked that because it's a great story. I think my very first snare, it was a, it was a Ludwig. You know, this was 19, probably 63. I don't know exactly what it was called. I was four years old when I got it. So if I was four, it was probably 1961, maybe, 1961 or 62. And I remember I wanted it more than anything in life to have a real, just a real drum of any kind. And uh, my dad went to the store to get it for me. I remember staying home. And he comes back home and says, and he goes, comes up to me and says, Jerry, I'm really sorry, but I just wasn't able to get the drum. And I remember I just broke into like tears. I was just profusely crying. I was like, the worst thing that I could ever imagine that could have happened to me is that he goes to get the drum. He comes back without it. And then he says, could you go out in the car? And I left something there. Could you go get that for me? And I walked out there. It's hard for me to tell the story almost without crying. But I walk out there, and there it was sitting on the front seat of the car. You know, I was like, oh, yeah. And that was, the, that was the, one of the greatest things. That, that was my first snare. <laughs> Four years old, huh? I remember I had, I had a toy kit before that. And I thought, drums are the answer, man. I can get girls with drums because there's a picture of me. Uh, I think I'd fallen asleep or something behind my kit, my toy kit. And there's this little girl standing right next to me, like real close. <laughs> I'm like, all right, this is the answer. 
<laughs> so what what was it that got you even interested in the drums? You know, I really don't even know. It's like this is what I've always done. I think my earliest memory of seeing drums and being interested was probably around that age, if not earlier. But I think I was already playing when I saw this these drums. I went to an uncle's house, and he had this blue sparkle kit in his basement. And I just remember being so intrigued with it because it was real. You know, they were real drums. I think I was already interested. So, but I just don't know why I play drums. I just do. You know, I've never taken lessons or done anything like that. I just play, you know? Uh, have you ever had a period of not wanting to play drums anymore? Like, yeah. And then what do you do? Do you just take a break or? Well, uh, well, I hardly ever play when I'm at home at all. I never practice. Although I am practicing now because I have to learn these new songs off the new record. But, uh, and during the pandemic, I was thinking, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I think I might be done. I think I want to just move on and find something else in life. You know, like I was saying, because everything was just so confusing to me. And I remember uh, in the hospital after my second heart attack, I've had two heart attacks. First one killed me. Second one, I had open heart surgery, blah, 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 blah. blah. I remember waking, being in the hospital after that one, thinking, you know, I think I might be done. I don't, I, I think I'm just going to not do this anymore. And I was at a party uh, talking to a friend after I got out of the hospital. I said, you know what? I think I'm just, I don't know if I want to play anymore. I think I'm just, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And he just kind of, he didn't yell at me, but he was very firm. And he said, no, you will play. You will get back out there and you will play because that's who you are and that's what you do. And so I wrote a song called She Called Me Home. It's on the new record that was uh, inspired by him telling me that. So now I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that the past few years has been a trying time for everyone. But yeah, that I think just having such a long career, like when do you finally say, hey, let me try something else. Let me paint. You know, let me do anything else. Yeah. And I've always and I've always and I've always been a writer as well. I like to write. I've written stories and things like that. And I think about that. I think, hey, maybe I'll just do that. There have been times in my life I thought, if I could just be on an island somewhere and just write, that's all I did. That'd be great. But nothing's ever as fun as it seems, you know. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I just have to well, I mean, we're at the end here. So what's what's next? What's in store for King's X and what's in store for you moving forward? Well, we got some shows coming up October, November. We're going to Tennessee and Kentucky and Texas. And, uh, you know, hopefully this record can spark some interest in some people and we can keep doing this. You know, have you been saying that about every record since the beginning? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, because we never know. I mean, I'm hoping, yeah, this would be great if something really could take off with this one. You know, I mean, we've been fortunate that we have a, a bit of a career, but, you know, the world doesn't really know who King's X is, I don't think. The musicians of the world do. You know, but, and, you know, we have some very, very loyal fans, but we haven't uh, penetrated the entire uh, general public. Yeah, that's 
I often think like, is it better? Which side's better? Blow up and fizzle out fast, or or have thirteen records over thirty five years? Well, I'm hoping that we can uh, have a big record that fizzles out fast now, because we've already had the past thirteen years all that other crap. So let's just have a big record that makes us fizzle out. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm down. I'm ready. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, again, congratulations. The record is incredible. Hope everyone checks it out. And hopefully you make it to Pittsburgh, and I'll get to see you guys live. Yeah, it'll be great. And then until next time, keep grooving, man. I'll keep doing my best, man. <laughs> you do the same. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. All right, it is lesson time. This week, I am passing the baton back over to my good friend Tom Went, and he is continuing his Jazz Drumming Essentials series. This time, he is covering what is called the Jazz Shuffle, the Shuffle. Um, yeah, let's just let Tom take it away. everybody, Thomas Went back with you once again for Drum Factory Direct. Welcome back to our ongoing series on some of the basic fundamentals of playing jazz music. We've covered a bunch of stuff so far, and in today's lesson, we are going to be talking about one of the most important and essential grooves in the jazz idiom, and that is the basic shuffle rhythm. Now I should start off by saying that there are a bunch of different kind of ways to play a shuffle. And today we're going to be dealing with what is sort of emerged as the most commonly heard and accepted way of playing a shuffle in jazz. There are a bunch of other ways we might deal with some of those ways in future videos, but today we're going to be talking about what's sort of the most common way of doing this. In this groove, sort of emerged out of the music that was developing in the early, mid, and late 1940s. I'm talking about sort of the first R&B or rhythm and blues music. This is music that emerged from a bunch of different places, really, in this country. Cities like Kansas City, Missouri, of course Chicago, and even other cities like Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and right here where I'm from in Pittsburgh, PA. This is a very essential groove to playing this music. Now, what it really is, is an enhanced, sort of enhanced way of playing basic jazz time, as we've talked about before, where you're playing the ride cymbal, feathering on the bass drum, the hi-hat on two and four. But with a shuffle, we're adding a backbeat on beats two and four. And we're sort of kind of sliding in and sliding out 
of those backbeats with the left hand. The left hand is really the key player in this groove since we've already talked about how to play swinging time on the drums. Now, this music, this early R&B music in the 1940s, which would sort of give way to the new rock and roll idiom of the 1950s, this groove was sort of the essence of this rhythm and blues music, this new music that was happening. Uh, groups like Louis Jordan's Timpani Five, uh, Joe Morris's groups, uh, Johnny Otis and his group, these are just some of the groups where this rhythm was featured prominently. There were many, many groups that were utilizing it, and as I said, it's one of the most important in the music. So, if we take the whole groove at a nice, slow tempo, it sounds something like this. So that's basically what the entire groove sounds like, and I hope you could see and hear that it's very, very similar to just standard swinging jazz time playing. Again, the left hand is the key player. I'm basically playing a continuous stream of swinging eighth notes. Da, do, da, do, da, do, da, do, da, do, da, do, da. But I'm accenting beats two and four, and the other notes are not quite ghost notes, but they're quite soft, accenting two and four. So if we just isolate the left hand at that same sort of medium to slow tempo, this is what I'm doing with just the left hand. Okay, I hope you could see what was happening with the left hand in that last demonstration. This groove is relatively simple in theory, and it's simple if you look at it on paper, but there is a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance that goes into playing this groove well. And shuffles are played at a variety, a wide variety of tempos from quite slow to really pretty quick. So I'm gonna play an example for you starting out pretty slow and moving into a relatively quick tempo. And I want you to listen and watch as to how the, how the left hand in particular changes just a little bit as the tempo increases. Check this out.
you guys were able to see what was happening with my left hand as the tempo was increasing and then as it was decreasing. The thing you want to keep in mind is as the tempo increases with a shuffle, you want to try to maintain that nice light swinging feel and you do that by not trying to muscle out all of those notes with the left hand. You want to keep it really light. I'm really using a combination of the arm, wrist and fingers to do this and I'm trying to keep my arm nice and relaxed as the tempo gets up the, the left hand should actually get a little bit quieter so that you can sort of maintain the lightness of it okay with a little bit of practice you'll be able to do it it might take some time now to give you sort of a, a, a practical real-world example of this check out this clip this is from a gig that I actually played just last night we ended up playing a medium tempo shuffle blues so this is sort of what the groove sounds like in context. Check this out. Alright, I hope that gives you guys a little bit of an idea of how this groove functions in an actual musical setting. This is such an essential groove and I hope that this lesson has given you guys a little bit of insight into how to get started working on it yourselves. As I always say, we want to take our cues from the great masters of this music, the men and women who created it. There are so many great jazz drummers to listen to and really all of them have their own version of a great shuffle beat. Playing a great shuffle is kind of a prerequisite to being a good jazz drummer. And there's so many different drummers to learn from. Some of my favorite drummers when it comes to playing shuffles are masters like Art Blakey, Billy Higgins, Grady Tate, Mickey Roker, O.C. Johnson. There are so many to learn from. And I hope you enjoy the process of assimilating this music in this groove and listening to these great masters. What you want to remember is anytime you're playing a groove on the drums, regardless of idiom, it should make people want to dance. Your time, your groove, your feeling should make people want to move. It's one of the most important parts of playing this instrument. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much for joining me today. And as always, stay safe and stay close to the music. Take care.
For this week's Shop Talk segment, I am hanging with my friend Steve Stecker over at Doc Sweeney Drums. They just released a brand new snare drum design. Pretty innovative. I don't know that anything like this has ever existed before. I've certainly never seen it. They're calling it the Hollow Core. Um, I'm just going to read the press release so I don't get any of the details wrong. But this is a pretty, pretty awesome new innovation. So Hollow Core sna uh, series snares. The hypothesis was a hollow core shell will produce a more resonant and fat sounding snare drum. That's what they were, that's what Steve envisioned, and then they sought to design this. So the design consists of a solid batter and resonant bearing edge sections with a hollow core made of thin internal and external walls that slip into joints on the bearing edge sections. They audio tested several variants of the design, including different bearing edges, shell thicknesses, lug layouts, and species. And the outcome of those tests was the new hollow core series snare. Its specs is a 14 inch drum, six and a half inches deep with a three quarters of an inch thick maple stave shell with 30 degree rounded bearing edges. There are inlays that are the connecting points between the hollow core and the solid bearing edges. They're using modern tube lugs that are mounted on the top and bottom inlays. Die cast hoops, but they will also offer three millimeter triple flange they come with an Aquarian Super 2 batter and a classic clear snare side head, an indie strainer, 16 strand wires, a hand rubbed oil finish, and they have some just suggestions for tuning and all that. But um, I got one into the studio here to test. I took it over and did a to the big room and did a bunch of, of tuning tests from what I would think of medium high all the way down to super low. We'll drop that in at the end of the interview. But I wanted to pick Steve's brain about, you know, what, how did this come to be, go from a thought of an idea through all the testing and then how they kind of settled on each of these components. So it's all very specifically chosen. So why 16-strand wires? Why die cast hoops? All that stuff. So let's get to it with Steven Stecker of Doc Sweeney Drums on the new Hollow Core Series Snare. What's new with you? Um, I'm just recovering from, I had a total hip replacement in August. Oh wow! Yeah, so I was uh, I was actually up and walking the same day of the surgery, and then four days later I was in the studio working on drums. Oh, but no it was kidding. somewhat uncomfortable to say the least. <laughs> now, uh, now I'm back up. I mean, I'm in. It's so much better than it was pre-surgery because it was so painful just living with a, yeah. a bad bad back. And now it, you know, I feel uh, ten years younger and look. 15 years older. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can even those out eventually. I yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. But no, nah, it, it's actually great. And we, you know, I've had a ton of things in uh, design, um, the hollow core being one. And we had spent the last roughly nine months doing all kinds of testing and research into it. You know, I came up with this concept of the hollow body uh, thinking of hollow body guitars come up, well, can we do it? And if we do do it, you know, what are going to be the tonal implications of, of trying to hollow out a, a core, going with the assumption that I was going to create a punchy sound just by um, lowering the mass of the shell itself mm -hmm. and creating these really thick bearing edges, which are going to hug the hoops, I mean, the hoops and the heads. So getting more control. And, uh, you know, we tested different thicknesses. We started at a half, we went to three quarters, we tried different bearing edges and all kinds of things. 
And the result, we, we really felt good. We tested it in the studios in Nashville and down here in SoCal. And so after several iterations, and I think we tried 10 different batting, batter, batter heads and combos. Um, and uh, we finally came up with the version that we like. And that's the one I sent to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, also working on what you'll see in Sue is a lugless drums kit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll show you. I, I don't know if this will work, but can you see it? Oh, yeah. It looks like an unfinished drum set. <laughs> yeah, it's a finished drum set. It, it has no lugs. The spurs are actually built into the hoops, and the tom brackets for the floor toms are built into the hoops, so there's no tom brackets. The strainer actually sits on a hoop as well, so the strainer, nothing's drilled into it. They're the most resonant thing we've ever built. We actually handmade those aluminum components. We're now finding, I mean, there's a lot of machining and CNC, but they sound really good. We're, that'll be the next crazy dock thing we'll see in about a month. But I just been in the, you know, being the mad scientist and testing at all these different theories. And, um, you know, really, really stoked with, with the hollow floor because it's just much more um, feasible to produce on a mass, mass basis, mass production basis, where these um, one off kind of interesting lugless drum concepts. Uh, would take a lot more and be able to mass produce them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, we have the patent pending for the technology that we um, put together and they sound tremendous, but it's just a matter of, you know, do we have to go offshore to have the, these aluminum super rings made or can we find somewhere in, you know, Keokuk, Iowa or Pennsylvania or somewhere other than California uh, to have those parts made? And if we do, then you'll see more of those. But that would probably be the next thing on your hit parade to take a test drive on. <laughs> the, the actual spurs snap, they're, they're spring-loaded, so when you want to snap them back, they snap right into the hoop and total circle. You just load them in the bag and you're off and running, so you don't have to put anything on. It's um, it's really, really a resonant drum set. I mean, they just went, <laughs> That's kind of fun, and we're doing all kinds of different exotic species of I've run across so you know it's been a busiest year we've ever had um that's good we've good. been shipping a ton of stuff to canada um a ton of stuff to europe um into asia so you know we're in holland and we're in switzerland and we've been in france and now we're in several countries in asia so i don't know it's gone from this uh dockinized little party activity you know, as, as retired people, and it's kind of just picked up pace, you know, which is cool. We're still young enough to do it for a while and then hand off the reins to someone else because, I, you know, with all this money I've invented in patents and invested in patents and everything, I, someone ought to take over. It's not going to be my kids. Their law degrees and other things are like fucking wrong, you know. <laughs> there's no money in it. Yeah, there's no money in it, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, well, yeah, there's not a lot in it, that's for sure. But yeah, it's just kind of looking, always looking for a sound, you know, always testing the boundaries. I've got another wild thing in my head that I dreamt up last night, uh, which will be a whole different bearing edge setup. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit more later. I'll send you some pics, but uh, it's along the lines of some of the uh, flang, I think they're called flanger or flanger snares from the 20s and 30s, 
where they had this brass piece that went in the middle of the drum, uh, right underneath the bearing edges. Uh, we were thinking, that, I was thinking we could do something like that in wood and just see how the sound comes out. And then we test it with different portholes in it. We're also testing what we would do if we enlarged some sound ports in the current um, hollow core as well. So having a, you know, having a, a smaller uh, to the exterior, but having bigger portholes and seeing what kind of sound that produces. So those are things on the horizon. Wow. You're not even like celebrating the holocore. You're right on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah, well, because I've been working on it so long. We did the videos and we've tested and tested and tested. I've lived with this so long. We're now got it down to where we can mass produce it. And I don't have to handle every single one of them. You know, the team will be doing that. And the CNC, basically, the shells, uh, we do a CNC machine. So everything's built to perfect dimensions, ODs and IDs internal and out in outer dimensions and diameters. And so, you know, once you get it down to where you can make these things with a CNC pretty quickly, the only thing that adds is the gluing and, and finishing, but, you know, being able to produce these maple, we're also going to do walnut. We have done walnut. Um, so there'll be two, they'll be rarely standardized. We have the little bridge, which, you know, the, the strainer hooks to, um, so all of those components are now readily available in mass quantities and we'll be doing shipping them directly from, you know, the production line. So we're, we're going to be driving down the cost of them as we get more efficient in economies of scale. But it's something that I think can compete with um, most of the custom builders and some of the higher end stuff that comes out of DW um, with this unique, you know, patent pending concept. Now, where does it go from here? Well, we want to get those out and do it in a big way, introduce them, get them around. We're, we're actually having an event this weekend at all of our major distributors called the Doc Sweeney Founders Celebration, and there'll be holocores at most of those locations. There's a big batch coming in this week, so they'll be going out and be in the hands of all the distributors, that, uh, including in Europe. So they'll, you know, they'll get some exposure that way. They'll get and it's just great that December, I mean, October 7th just happens to be the first day of the launch of the weekend. So, yeah, we're pretty stoked about that. So, but Take me back to the design. I mean, the hypothesis and, and sure. were you completely satisfied or did you have to make some drastic changes as you were developing it? Well, we made some significant alterations. I, the whole concept was just based on the hollow body guitar. And as I started drawing it up and doing some CAD CAM, just trying to figure out what what dimensions would really work and what dimensions are required to get the sound effect that I was looking for. So that, um, for lack of better terms, that hollow, a wider, deeper, fat sound. Yeah, and so we started with, you know, only a half an inch thick and, and the void, which is the open space, just wasn't big enough to create what I wanted in terms of that real deep fat sound with some punch to it and so we continued to go out we went to five eighths and then one to three quarters three quarters um was the was the sweet spot and that's where we started we ended on three quarters of an inch thick that allowed us to do some special things with the bearing edge so we started with 45 rounded and it was really ringy and didn't sound good at all and we went to 30 degree rounded sounded better but not exactly where i wanted it and then we went to 30 super rounded that's three quarters of an inch thick. And that just seemed to be right in the space. Uh, we then add a, 
uh, a battle between three mil triple flange and die cast hoops. Both are definitely usable on it, but when we came up with the idea, let's get a drum out there where it can be fat and tuned at multiple levels and not have to have a lot of muting or muffling going on, you know, let the drum do all the work. And that with the die cast gave it the most control. And in some, in some instances, it might be too much control. Therefore, we've got the backup, which is three mil triple flange, which gives you still that fat sound, but it allows you to do, you know, a, a little more openness for those that want a much more open higher end. The higher end uh, in any of these drums tends to be a little bit choked off the higher you go. Uh, but you throw a triple flange on and you extend that range quite a bit. So that was the biggest thing. Like I said, nine months worth of uh, design iterations. And we've we put more effort into this than anything else we've done um, in terms of a snare drum offering. So we're, we're really pleased with the results. We had it in the hands of some studio people. So we let a number of doc artists and other studio people um, mess with it and play with it and record with it and send us their files and, and their feedback. And that was all taken into consideration when we got, finally got to the, the modern, you know, the hollow core that you see today. Why 16 strand wires? Did you mess with different options? Yes. That's another thing we did. We, we went the full gambit. We went from 16, 20, 24, 25 from one user and 30. And what we got down to is we felt that of all of the different tests that we ran on all those different strand varieties, that 16 gave us enough of the snare sound, the sizzle, the, uh, if you will, and that was just in the right kind of sound that we were looking for. So it was letting more of the drum and that fatness of the drum come out than, for example, with 30 strand, you're getting a heck of a lot of, of snare buzz and, and some sympathetic snare sound as well, like just with so many wires. So we just thought if you were going to want to hear the, the tone and the sound of the wood and the drum itself, we go with the 16, which still gives you you know, nice sizzle, but it doesn't, it's not overwhelming in sound. So, yeah, that was tested. Uh, those varieties were all part of the various iterations and testings and recordings. Do you have a favorite tuning for this drum? I tested it from medium high down to as low as it can go, and it was all great. So do you have a spot that you think is ideal for it? Yeah, the, the spot uh, ideal for it is it, we think that with the, uh, the Reso side, about a medium tuning, so not really cranked up, not really low. Medium tuning gives you much more versatility uh, with batter tuning. We think that uh, in the deep and mid areas, it performs quite well. Um, those that uh, intend to use it for some more of a high-end crack with punch and um, would most likely uh, go with the, the triple flange, three mil triple flange, and or possibly a different head. Um, we thought that the head being a very thin two-ply gave us the best kind of response and didn't over-control the drum. You know, so, uh, for example, Evans, H, you know, an HD generic dryer or, you know, even a Power Stroke 3 or all the different, different versions of controlled snare heads. We did, felt that we didn't want it that controlled. We wanted to leave it open and... And we wanted, it was most likely going to be a drum that a lot of power hitters are going to use. Uh, and therefore, we thought the two-ply was a, a good option. And we think that the Super 2 Aquarian uh, gives it quite a wider tuning range than if you go with 
with a certain control head, which when you get up in the high, it really becomes just absolutely dried out. So we, we think that the right head combo's there. But yeah, I think people will crank it up even with the current structure, um, the current uh, head and, and uh, hoop combo and really like it. At, but it's just, you know, drier than my tastes. You know, like, like just a little bit more of it opened up and that's easily handled by changing heads. Now, is there any, I'm thinking of like, what's, what would be the concerns for a customer? Any potential risk of this shell not holding its form over time because there's a big space in it? Yeah, no, um, that is, it's also been part of a lot of the testing and moving stuff around the, it, uh, because it is actually uh, sitting, the, the inner components, the inner walls, if you will, the hollow core, rest on a large computer-generated, uh, milled, if you will, edges where there's a fairly substantial joint that goes into um, both the top and bottom. So where it touches the solid top and bottom bearing edge parts, which are three-quarters of an inch thick, very, very sturdy, there is that joint. And uh, it's as sturdy as the rest of the drum. That, it will never go out around unless you run it over with your car, you know, uh, or, or have someone that's really big stand on it. But uh, it might even, ta- it might even uh, uh, pass that test. But, yeah, we're, we're very confident in the structure, the, the rigidity and stability of the, of the uh, shell itself. Now, is it eight lugs? I've got it here. I should have counted. Or is it ten? Uh, it's eight lugs. Eight yep. lug. Did you mess with yep. ten lug options, or, or did you yeah, right we away? did. We, yeah, we did eight and ten, and we once again, after all of the the testing and playing in the studios, and letting a bunch of different um, drummers, studio people, tune it and test it. Um, the consensus was at the end of the day that the eight lug um, allowed them to control the drum you know, without any trouble um, and allowed them to tune it. They fought, they felt very effectively with eight and the 10, you know, it, it's fine. Uh, it's just a little more controlled, but really it was unanimous uh, of all the testers that the eight lug just opened it up a little bit more uh, and gave it that really deep fat gush gush kind of sound that every, you know, that our original intent was is to have a big fat throated drum and, Eight lug helps that, you know. Ten lug, uh, as a matter of fact, eight lug uh, uh, with with the diecast really is a fat, you know, uh, controlled sound, not overly controlled. I think. What do you do with all these test drums that don't make the cut? <laughs> uh, um, uh, I donate quite a few of them. Uh, they, we have drummers without borders here in San Diego, SoCal, and I donate quite a bit of equipment to them unbadge it and, and, uh, and donate it to them. And so that's a really good thing. Um, and to some folks that really wanted more of an open sound, you know, some of the, if you will, prototypes uh, will find their way to dock artists and they'll use them in different capacities. So, yeah, there, there's nothing you know, as My mom would say, well, you'll have fancy firewood, you know, otherwise, uh, yeah, big supporter. Uh, no, actually she has, but yeah, I think we, we try to find homes for all of this stuff. And, the, you know, whether it's donating it to schools, um, you know, that's fine. I'm not, not, not going to sit around here in my studio because I always put a more junk in right behind it. <laughs> Something new has got to happen right behind it, right? Have you ever messed with six lugs? What's that? Have you ever messed with six lug drums? 
Yes, as a matter of fact, I have uh, made a couple steam bent maple six lug drums. And I thought they were great. They sold right away. Um, I thought they were really good, but you know, um, that's kind of one of those things where people are really leery that you know the ten lug is the thing to do with your snare ten lug. And and I go, well, look back at some of these student models from the forties and fifties and sixties and some other models that are only six lugs, really open really cool jazz soundy things and yeah we we've made them but there just really hasn't been much of a you know demand for it so you know uh, i probably will make another one but the ones we did make we knew the types of individuals that would go after them and they were more of a kind of a jazz performance type of thing where it was you know just a really open sound for brushes and everything else it sounds really good that way you mentioned you're, you did a walnut version. Are you going to do any other sizes, like an eight-inch deep or a shallower drum or different diameter? Now, initially, in the initial production batches, which are a couple of batches, of, um, a couple of tranches that are underway, they're all going to be 14 by 6.5 just to maintain standard and get up in economies of scale. Uh, we definitely are going to go to a, an eight-inch deep one that we'll probably call the Super Fat Colicor or something, but that will be a monster. Um, what I'm also going to do is make a couple toms the same way. So ultimately, I'll make a te- uh, we're going to make a test kit using that same concept for everything. Um, but yeah, we're definitely going to go deeper. I think going shallow is not really feasible because you end up having a space that's hollow that's just negligible. I mean, it's you know would be an inch and a half uh, or an inch, you know, and it, that's really not going to accomplish anything. Uh, it'll sound just like a solid snare, I think. At least theoretically, it would sound less different. But going to an eight-inch depth snare with this concept just gives you that much bigger void, and it's going to give you a much lower and punchy sound. And we're definitely got that on the hit parade. That's going to be out before the holiday season. So I have to put one a bow on one and send it to Pittsburgh. <laughs> I mean, the kit that sounds crazy. That kick drum will be like sub. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be thunderous. Yeah, it'll. Well, it, it won't need much. I mean, yeah, you won't need much more than that. I don't know if you'll even have to mic it. It'll be pretty loud. You know? Wow. I mean, I, I thank you for sending me the drum. I had a lot of fun messing with it. It all I, I compared it to four other four other drums. I had a solid single ply maple. I had the red oak that from you guys. I had right. a vintage style three ply with a big poplar core. Um, and a 12-ply maple. And when I tuned them all up identically, as best as I could, it was closest in timbre to the 3-ply, surprisingly, than the um, solid maple. Like, there was an openness to it that was like, oh, it's a little bit more in that world, but then it had just a lot more sound to it. Yeah, I think it's the combination of the big mass of the actual striking area. So you've got a pretty significant mass there at three quarters of an inch thick, right? And roughly an inch and a half deep. So you're hitting a pretty solid. And then the energy goes from the head into that solid part, but then it goes and migrates into two thinner inner walls, allowing it to really resonate. So it creates this chamber, which makes it kind of deeper and fatter sounding. So it would be much more akin to a three ply because the the actual size, um, if it was three quarters of an inch solid, it would be so loud. It would be much more like a steam vent drum that's, you know, 516, but just screamingly loud. So we think, yeah, that combination allows it to be a little more powerful, I think, and punchy than 
just a strict three ply, um, you know, and I think it's some of the mass behind it, as well as a, a much a fairly substantial void around the roughly 46 inches in circumference, 43, 44 inches. So if I had this drum as like the, my centerpiece for my studio, yep. what would be the comp next complimentary snare drum that you offer that would give me, you know, the, the contrast to this? Right. Um, I think the next one would be, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm working on it now. I'll, I'll see if I can hold it up for you. Oh, this, yeah. This is solid. This is a half an inch thick, solid maple. And in this case, figured burl maple. Four, it's 14 by four, half an inch thick. And it really, it will take the paint off your walls. It, it really, it's extremely articulate, but the crack, and it's act, that drum's called crack. <laughs> but the, it, it really does have. So uh, whether it's a side snare or something you, you want, you know, just to have there for mad accents, that's one really good option. Uh, I do think the uh, we, we're running a bunch of elms as well, elm drums, elm, you know, steam bat elms, so you know, five sixteenths of an inch thick, very warm. And I think one of the best tonal goods that we work with um, would be mellower than the hollow core. So warm, very warm and mellow. Um, and then that hollow, that one that you just saw, uh, for someone that wanted something with a lot of staccato, a lot of crack. Uh, but believe it or not, it's only four inches deep, but it can be tuned way down as well. So you can get some really interesting range out of that drum uh, up to sounding like you're hitting concrete with snare wires under it, you know. Is that a stave shell or a steam bed? Yeah, that's a stave shell. We're going to do it in both 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 versions. But in this case, uh, we went with a half an inch thick because first of all, the board was fantastic that I found, and I said I got to make a drum out of it. And so when we did it, and you know, it just came out sounding great. So we'll be doing a lot of half an inch thick stave, and we'll be doing the standard um, uh, same bearing edges, but but steam bed. Um, it just really, really, really sounds good to me. And of course, we generally with the more of the piccolo size, we we tend to go with babinga or uh, maple, something that really is going to have some punch. I mean, some uh, really high end crack and versatility, um, as opposed to trying to make it out of mahogany, which wouldn't really make much sense. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it'd be kind of a weak firecracker. Uh, All right. So recap that. That's a four inch deep maple stave maple. Yep. Yep, and then the hollow core is six, six and, and a half stave maple with the the big chamber in it. What would Correct. be the dimensions of the elm that you would add into the mix? The elm, uh, we're doing it in two sizes: fourteen by five and a half and fourteen by six and a half. All elms, so elm rings and elm. Uh, that uh, we think is just a tremendous tonal wood. Uh, gives you the warmth and kind of the vintage sound of uh, mahogany uh, in a domestic species. And, and just, we think that it pr pr provides a really wide tuning range, more wider than you would think, given how um, it's, it's not a dense hardwood, you know, so you would think the high, it would show or would struggle with high ends, but it really, we haven't found that to be true, but it's really warm, warm middles and lows for sure. Well, 
that's it. I've got my uh, my shopping list in order here. <laughs> All right, now that we've talked about the drum, let's get to checking out the demo. So what I did was I took the drum over to the other studio here on the other side of this office, big room, fully mic'd up. So three mics on the drum, two on top, one on bottom. I have a 57 and a blue Hummingbird condenser on top and a 57 on the bottom. Three overheads with Earthworks, Space Pair, and a Mojave tube, large diaphragm condenser over top. Two room mics 20 feet out from the kit, they're ribbon mics. Um, so it's a full-on um, a full-on mic setup that, you know, trying to capture everything that this drum could possibly put out. And I tuned it medium-high, no dampening, and then backed it down by a half step until we got to the super low, deep, guttural kind of sound. So here we go. This is the hollow core snare drum.
I think that drum sounds fantastic. And I did, I should say, I had four other drums that are in my collection tuned up identically to do a side-by-side. -side. I had a solid maple, like steam-bent maple. I had a stave oak. I had a 12-ply maple and had a vintage-style 3-ply mahogany poplar. Just to compare it, like what does this drum, how does it fit with all these drums that I'm really familiar with? It sounded, like I said in the interview, most comparable to the vintage-style 3-ply, but just bigger and fuller. And um, it also had like no sour spots where some of the other drums when I was getting into that lower mid-tuning, they just kind of, you could tell that wasn't a sweet spot. This thing is kind of like scooped in all the right ways. So if you like that deep, kind of dry, punchy, fat kind of snare sound, but you don't want to use an old vintage drum, check out the Holocore. It's it's no joke, but um, yeah. Unfortunately, I've got to box it up. It's sitting down here. I've got to box it up and send it back home. But yeah, uh, contact your local dealer or reach out to Doc Swinney directly to see where this drum might be available. That's the Holocore. Super cool. Let's move on to some listener questions. First question comes from Larry. How important is it to play live music often? I feel like that's a difficult question to answer, but I know for me personally, all the stuff that I practice in here by myself um, is completely irrelevant if I don't have a means to apply it in a performance situation or a recording situation where other people are involved. I feel like that's where the truth kind of plays out, like what works on stage, what doesn't work on stage. You can have some abstract, super fun ideas in here, which can be great, great for your soul, great for your creativity. Some people might enjoy listening to it or watching the Instagram videos or whatever, but does it work if there's three or four, or two, three, four, five other people playing along with you or with a crowd of people in front of you? So for me, personally, playing live is super crucial because it's the reality check. Is it is what I'm working on making this experience better as a performing artist? Or do I need to go back and, and refocus, you know, figure out what really what, what really translates into a good gig versus am I getting better as a drummer versus am I getting better as a performer or as a band member? So for me, it's everything. For you, if you're just having fun at home, I mean, I still think you should try to play with people, but you know, it's each situation is different. But I'll say again, for me, playing live is the ultimate kind of truth barometer. Here's one from Nick. Brilliant or traditional symbols? Um, I don't have a preference. I mean, I tend to go to traditional finished symbols just because I don't want to have to even think about cleaning symbols ever. And sometimes brilliant symbols with fingerprints, it can until they get completely dirty and they start to patina and tarnish and become their own thing. You know, it, it doesn't look so great. But I have both. Um, I used to be all brilliant back in the day. Then I went to all traditional. Now I just, it doesn't really matter. I don't have a preference. It's all about what the sound does. I do think a brilliant finished symbol is a slightly duller tone, which can be exactly what you need for certain things. Like the main ride I use for gigging is a 20 inch brilliant because it sounds beautiful and crisp and clean, but it doesn't have all that high end stuff that can be a little bit annoying after two or three sets of music. So I use them all. I don't have a preference. And here's one more. This one came in from Ryan. With something like the Gadamans, the the book by the great Steve Jad, where Steve Gad, Steve Jad, interesting, 
So with something like Gadamans, where the goal tempo is far off what I can from what I can achieve, would you stick with it until you hit the tempo or consider alternative alternative exercises to build your skills and then return back to it? That's a good question. I think some a lot of stuff in that book, from my experience, I worked through that whole book. It's all on my YouTube channel. At least it was. I might have archived it. I did live streams of me working through that whole book kind of from beginning to end. A lot of it is just the coordination of the patterns or just getting familiar with how he's displacing these things. It wasn't so much chops for me. So it took me a few minutes to figure out the patterns, and that's what kind of kept me from achieving the goal tempo. It wasn't the technical stuff. So if it's just a matter of the patterns being unfamiliar, then I would say just stick with them slowly and add a few BPM. Make sure you push yourself at every time you practice it. Maybe try just try the goal tempo at the end of your session to see how far off you are. But a lot of that is pattern uh, familiarity. But if it's more of a technical problem where you, you just don't have the, the reflexes yet to play whatever it is that's in that exercise, that's when I would go back. So it, in the case of Gadamans, he's focusing on rudiments. So if it's a Rademacue or a flam tap or an inverted flam tap, I would isolate that actual rudiment, go, you know, the classic way of practicing this stuff from super slow, gradually increase the tempo to your max speed, hold it there for, you know, 30 seconds or whatever, and then bring it back down just to get the rudiment itself ingrained into your reflexes and your muscle memory, because you're not going to be able to apply those rudiments to musical phrases until you have the rudiment itself kind of mastered. So that's what I would do in that particular case, would be isolate the rudiment that's being utilized, make sure you can play that up to speed, and then just spend some time figuring out what's the pattern, how's he displacing it, what's the permutation of the exercise itself, and then it should all kind of come together. Hopefully that helps. If you have any questions you want me to answer on the show, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right, we are coming to the end of the episode, which means it's time for the warehouse pick of the week. And this week I have, uh, I've selected, so I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I featured our 5x14 seamless aluminum snare drum. And there were a few people who said, hey, put out a six and a half version of this and I'll buy it. Well, we actually have six and a half by 14 spun aluminum shells. They're not complete drums, but they are pretty much ready to go. They are pre-drilled for 10 tube lugs. Um, we're specifically saying the TU-150 lugs is the ones that will fit. It comes with holes, you know, you can attach your strainer. All the holes are already cut. The bearing edges are there. So you just need to get your parts and put it together. And what's interesting about this particular show is it has two beads. So rather than a center bead, Ludwig style, it's got two beads that, so it divides the show into thirds. Pretty interesting looking drum. I did put one together for us to demo. So we're gonna drop that in here. So yeah, if you want to put together your own drum, it's not super expensive. The show is $221.29. And then you can buy all the components to put together your own custom drum, or you might better repurpose some stuff you already have from an old drum that you're not using. It is the model number is SLO46514C2B. But if you just go to the site and look under drum shells for aluminum, you'll see it. It's a 6.5 by 14 spun aluminum shell with double bead. Uh, that's our pick of the week, and here is my demo.
So yeah, go build your own custom drum. Check it out. That's the 6 x 14 spun aluminum shell with a double bead. That is it for this week's episode. Like I say every week, if you do enjoy the show, head over to your Apple Podcast app or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're getting the show and give us a five-star rating. Make sure you're subscribing to our YouTube channel if you're not already. Uh, what else? Go over to stickshed.com and buy some new sticks. Let us know what you think of the site. Go check out all the shows on the Drum Click Network. And yeah, we're going to, Patrick's going to send us off again. Get your intro beats in, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one.